celebrate the launch of David Rothkopf's new book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation by becoming a member today. This month, new members will receive a free signed copy of the book, along with the usual member benefits, including an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Network Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and select the option titled American Resistance. Upon successful checkout, you will receive a confirmation email with instructions on how to redeem the book. The book retails for $29, but is included with this membership option. You'll just pay for shipping. Please allow two to four weeks for shipping. Thank you very much. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special post-election edition of the podcast with our team that has been with us all along leading up to the election and uh, has been pretty uncanny in some of their predictions, as we will explore. Uh, The team includes Simon Rosenberg. Simon is the president of NDN and the New Policy Institute. How are you doing, Simon? I'm good. I'm better today, David. I'm better today. You know, you've maintained your mood throughout all of this. (laughs) And judging from the response on Twitter that I've watched the past few days, you've maintained a lot of people's mood running up to this, which is a good thing. We also have Tara McGowan. Tara is the CEO and founder of Good Information and the publisher of Courier Newsroom. How are you doing, Tara? Hi, David. I'm I'm like Simon. I'm feeling good. Uh, we were talking earlier. I'm working off of adrenaline right now, but there's a, a lot of a good stuff to talk about today. Does that mean you didn't get enough sleep? I never get enough sleep, but certainly not last night. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm probably in good company in this group. And, and we're also joined by Tom Bonnier. Tom is veteran Democratic political strategist and CEO of Target Smart, and he was with us a few days ago talking about early voting, which turned out to be a great way to understand this, even when the punditocracy was getting it wrong. How are you doing, Tom? Well, if we're comparing notes, I'm working on about two hours sleep, but (laughs) I'm not wearing the clothes I was wearing all day yesterday and all night last (laughs) night, so I consider it a win. We consider it a a win, too. And, and, uh, Uh, are glad that you are here with us. Let me start with you, Simon. Periodically in our conversations on this, I accused you of being an optimist, you know, in a gentle and friendly way. And uh, you had a message that was not the message of anybody else in the media. You didn't predict a giant damn victory. You just said there is not going to be this red wave. At least it didn't look that way. In retrospect, you were right. Everybody else was wrong. And we have to begin this with giving you the opportunity to say, I told you so, although I would do it in a kind of with as much humility as possible. Well, listen, I, first of all, it's great to be with all of you and congratulations. I mean, we still have some, whether this is a good election or an okay election, we'll still, we still will find out 
in the next few days. We've got some critical races that are still undecided. But I will say this. I mean, look, I wrote a piece a year ago, November 1st of 2021, where I argued that this was not going to be a typical midterm, that the decision by the Republican Party to run towards MAGA, a politics that had just been rejected in overwhelming numbers twice, meant that they were probably going to have a much lower ceiling because they were going to be asking a lot of people who had just voted against this kind of extremist politics in two very high turnout elections to then come over and be with them. And it just wasn't going to be easy. It doesn't mean it wasn't going to happen, but it wasn't going to be easy. And and I argued that, look, we were going to have enough to run on to make a credible case that we'd done a good job. We would have the ability to find them as being extreme and unfit, and, and we couldn't go there. And that also we had a lot of new technologies and new capacities to turn out our voters to make sure that we had a strong midterm performance, even if, you know, despite all of the odds, because we have made enormous advancements in recent years and how we touch people and get people out. And that I was just confident that all that together was going to give us a shot to make it a close competitive election. And that's what happened. I mean, it's, um, you know, I also want to say that I think that what a lot of commentators underestimated is that there's been an incredible normalization bias in the media towards Trump, MAGA, and the Republicans. They often get treated as a normal American political party. He's just the opposition leader. Instead of all the elements about their extremism and craziness that voters all know about, by the way, right? I mean, it's not the normalization bias is with the media. It's not with the public. And so the fear of MAGA was the most powerful force in the last two elections. And it probably today, we have to say, it's the, it still remains the most powerful force in American politics. So I'm pleased with the results. I hope that we can, I want Arizona and Nevada to go the right way. It's really important. And in the House, you know, there are still a lot of House races. I mean, I talked to somebody in the House campaign committee just a few minutes ago. They still think there's an outside chance we could we could keep the House. They don't they don't think it's likely, but they're not ruling it out either based on the way things are breaking right now. So, and I'll say one last thing. The real hero of this election is democratic the democratic grassroots and everyday Americans who despite all the negative news, despite COVID, despite supply chain disruptions, inflation, everything else, millions and millions of people went to work to make this victory possible. And truly, this was a bottom-up victory for the Democratic Party. There are millions of heroes that without their gritting it out, their postcards, their phone calls, their spreading good news on on the internet, we just wouldn't have done as well. And so I want to end my opening remarks by just saying a big thank you to all the, the proud patriots around the country who you know, did something really important for the country again. Let me go to you, Tara, before I go to Tom. You know, in some of our prior podcasts, we talked about what would be motivating people. And, you know, the conventional wisdom was, oh, it's inflation. That's all they can think about. We had a conversation with Cecile Richard in which we talked about the fact that the Dobbs decision was going to loom large. Uh, we had conversations that democracy was going to loom large. And it turned out they did. It turned out these these were two big motivating factors. I don't think you were surprised by that because we've talked about it. Were you surprised by the degree to which a lot of the experts got it wrong? I wish that I were surprised by how much the experts got it wrong. I'm not, unfortunately. I've been in this work for too long now. In the past, this is the fourth cycle that I have I have worked in in some capacity where the experts have all gotten it wrong. 
And I am I am not uh, a a data scientist or run a data company like Tom. Um, I love data. I uh, my my entire organization is very data driven. But my relationship with data is that it should inform how you see things. You should never read it as the truth because it is imperfect. And I think generally uh, a lot of pollsters and a lot of strategists and certainly a lot of pundits and journalists in the media take it as the truth and they report it as the truth. And that is, um, that's a problem. And that's something that needs to change because that is why so many people were surprised, are surprised and shocked by these results when I'm, I'm not. And that's not a humble brag, like, oh, told you so, or we're right. Everyone on this call, it's just that it, that the data hasn't been right for a long time. The polls haven't been right for a long time. So, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, right? Like we can't keep falling for it and certainly not have it inform really big decisions like what races are invested in or how campaigns run or what messages they drive. Because what I'm feeling today, now that our hope was rooted in some reality, and we're seeing that certainly in the results. I'm also really frustrated at what could have been if the media didn't change the conversation and drive a narrative about how inflation and crime were the dominant issues when abortion was always the dominant issue for young people and women who were the ones who moved the needle in a lot of these races um, and these close races. And so that's kind of where I am today. I don't rest on laurels for long. I'm frustrated at what could have been because I think Democrats could have had a much better night even than they did if the media did not shift the conversation. And I don't think that the media ever feels accountable. And it's hard to hold them accountable. And I think that's that's you know that's for another day and a much longer conversation. But I think it's a really important one that needs to be had. No doubt that's the case. A lot of focus in the media, Tom, was on polls. We talked here about the fact that a bunch of the polls pretty close to bogus. And when you look at some of the results, they that was borne out. And that that made a lot of polling averages pretty misleading. And you directed our focus to the good data, early election results. And in a country where increasingly people are voting early, it seemed like the data that you were dealing with was a better indicator than a lot of the polls and your ability to analyze it was a more useful tool. You think that's an overstatement? I don't even see it as sort of a better or worse. I see it as sort of two tools that if you're doing it right, you're using them complementary. And almost no one was doing it right in terms of that sort of analysis. And it suffered from exactly what you mentioned, meaning the great thing about polls is they tell us how people are voting, but they're not really good at telling us who's going to vote. And that's what we saw in a lot of these bad polls was they just had really ridiculous likely voter samples. They were just erasing young people from the equation, erasing people of color from the equation. And then they come out and show Republicans winning by a lot. And I look at those polls and say, well, gosh, that has us down three points. And I feel good about that poll because I know that that turnout scenario is not going to happen. Problem is the media, to Tara's point, doesn't ask those questions. And so they create a whole narrative around a false pretense. The great thing about the early vote is it tells us who's voting. And we know a good amount about who those people are. We don't know exactly for whom they're voting. But as I've said before, if you can look at 45 million people who have cast a ballot, it'll be more than that when all is said and done. 
But, you know, the numbers that we were looking at, especially over the last few days, and Simon did such a wonderful job in sharing that data every day and sharing the reality to push back on this false narrative. But if, if, if you can look at 45 million people who voted and you can't draw any conclusion from that, you are doing something very wrong. And so the media had this obsessive focus on polls and just bought them hook, line and sinker, given that probably 80 percent of them were just absolutely built on false pretenses, ignored the early vote, ignored the voter registration data, ignored the special elections. If you were someone who went to sleep in late August, early September and woke up today, you'd look at this election result and you'd probably say, yeah, that makes sense. Because that's every indicator we had before this false poll narrative set in. And then the media jumped on it and started talking about, to Tara's point, crime and inflation and suggesting that's what's driving this movement in the polls. That was really what changed the narrative. If you hadn't lived through that, this this result makes perfect sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. So what I'd like to do is go around with each one of you and and talk about some of your takeaways. What the big takeaways that you think people should come away from the results that we have had as the most consequential developments that took place yesterday. And I'll start with I'll start with you Simon. I mean, maybe if I could ask. I mean, we we know what the results are. We know that the house is 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 now going to either have slight republican majority or it might not, but it's really on the knife's edge. The Senate also seems to be on the knife's edge with things particularly dependent on Nevada and Georgia. And in terms of the ancillary analysis that we've seen, Trump pick candidates didn't do so well. Election deniers, in particularly in gubernatorial races, didn't do so well. You know, one narrative is that Ron DeSantis did pretty well, although he's in a kind of a bubble state. Um, and you know, th- th- those are kind of the big takeaways. Are there are there other things though that you want to direct people's attention to? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big takeaways of this election is that MAGA is a loser for the Republican Party since Donald Trump was nominated. You know, the highest. They've not broken 47%. We don't know yet in this election. In the last three elections, their high water mark was 47%. In 2018 and 2020, they lost the Senate, the House, and the presidency. The American people took those away from the Republican Party. And in this election, the Republicans were not able to take advantage of just extraordinary opportunity. I mean, just think about what the playing field that they had, right? Typical midterm dynamics, Biden low approval rating, inflation being really high, Right. The Russians and the Saudis raised gas prices a month before the election. I mean, this stuff was like handed to them and they couldn't really make it work because MAGA is not just an uh, is not just a ideological disaster for the country. It's a political disaster for the Republican Party. And my hope is that there starts the elements of the Republican Party that are not with MAGA are emboldened by what just happened, that it actually allows the Liz Cheney, Bill Kristol wing of the Republican Party to start having some gains and to have some momentum to question whether the choice of replacing conservatism with MAGA was a good decision by the Republicans. And I, and I certainly believe that Donald Trump had a really, really bad night. And this is now the third consecutive election where he's been a big loser. And the word loser is the term that should be associated with him for now and forever, because he is. 
I mean, very few people have has lost as many important elections as he has. And so, you know, I think that to me, one of the big takeaways is for those of us who care about democracy, about prevailing in Ukraine, about all the things that, David, you get up every day and are so passionate and articulate about, this was a really, really good election. And we should be pleased and heartened that the American people may have blocked, you know, the extremists from taking over their country, which has not just implications here in the United States, but all over the world. Yeah, absolutely true. Um, Our friend Greg Sargent of the Washington Post pointed out on Twitter fairly recently that at least four of the five swing states that decided 2020 won't have election-denying governors or secretaries of state, and it may soon be five of five. And that's a very big deal, a firewall to protect democracy. Tara, as, as you look out at this welter of information, which is probably overwhelming most people, to what would you direct their attention? So I want to talk about people under 30. I don't want to just call them young people, but the 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 media well, they're younger, they're younger than you, Tara. They are. They are. I am 36. I am I am I am older than the youths now. Um I but I can relate to them a little bit better than those older than me, I think. I'm a little bit closer, but I okay, that, that hurt. But go ahead. People under 30 have had a very different experience with the world and with government and with politics than older generations. They have gone through drills in their schools to protect themselves against mass shootings. They have watched their friends die in mass shootings. They have gone through a recession and possibly a second one already. They have not seen a good economy for them. They are more feminist, more progressive socially than generations before them. And they are voting at higher numbers than ever before. And it made sense when pollsters and reporters and political strategists would sort of write young people off as flaky because they used to be flaky. They are not anymore. We have not seen that since 2018. Every election, 2018, 2020, and now 2022, we have seen higher turnout of people 18 to 29 years old. They keep breaking their own records. They're going to continue to. And we also know that when you vote once or twice in a row, you are more likely to become a lifelong voter. So this is not a flash in the pan. We are creating a new generation of voters. This is changing the electorate. And Gen Z, who I am inspired by and in awe of every day because of their political activism and energy and enthusiasm and mobilization, we're only halfway through them as voting age Americans. So 2024, there are going to be millions more of these young people who have been through these experiences and have strong opinions and very clearly are making their voices heard and lean Democrat, that they don't want a fascist government and that they want a more equal and representative and diverse society and democracy. And so that is the thing that I am drawing a lot of hope from. They are the ones who decided a lot of these close elections yesterday. And as we get the results back in other states and and that block, that voting block is only going to get bigger and stronger. And I think people need to start paying closer attention because they're used to writing them off. And they are the ones who are going to start to decide a lot of elections in this country. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. So why does American democracy look the way it does? And how can we make it more responsive to the people it was formed to serve? Democracy Decoded is a podcast by the Campaign Legal Center. It examines our government 
and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. In season two, host Simone Leeper covers everything you need to know about voting in the United States. She speaks with experts from across the country and voters representing impacted communities about the deliberate barriers to voting that exist today. She asks, how can we make our voting system more inclusive? Because our democracy works best when every voter can participate. Listen to the latest season at democracydecoded.org or wherever you get your podcasts. So glad you said it. It's so true. Despite my advanced years, I totally acknowledge and appreciate the heroic role Gen Z played and the fact that as their role can only grow, it's a game changer, I think, politically in the United States, almost exclusively in good ways. Tom, to what would you direct people's attention? I think to, to both Simon's point and Tara's point in terms of the sort of anti-MAGA majority, the fact that we are looking at a younger and more diverse electorate. You know, one thing I keep coming back to here is this election being a repudiation of extremism. And that's, to me, the simplest way of explaining it and understanding it, whether it's the Dobbs decision, it's January 6th and the impact there. It's the kind of candidates. It's it's as Simon says, the hold that Donald Trump still has on the party and and what he's done to the party, I think, and put them in a very difficult position. And, you know, I think the thing that we need to keep in mind is that the nature of the Dobbs decision is it doesn't just go away after this election. It's not settled in any way. Yes, there are these states where there have been great victories for choice, but the nature of the Dobbs decision is it defers it to the political process state by state until something else happens, at least in the states where there are not constitutional pr protections. So what we saw here in this election is only the beginning. I think we're going to see more of this. And I think my takeaway is I hope that Democrats and progressives look at this and realize that they can lean in on these issues and that we don't buy into the sort of false dichotomy that the media tried to push us into of, are you going to talk about the economy or choice or inflation or choice? I think our democratic campaigns for the most part did a really good job in addressing these complicated issues in very relatable ways. And I think that's why you're seeing these results because they didn't buy into that false dichotomy that these campaigns had to be about one thing or that voters really only care. You know, the media kept pushing this narrative, again, driven by bad polls, unfortunately, where they kept saying, oh, abortion's fa fading, choice is fading as an issue. Voters don't really seem to be that concerned about it anymore, as, as if people could just forget about losing control over their own bodies. But that seemed to be the media narrative. So I think hopefully this changes the way we're looking at these campaigns and our campaigns and our institutions realize and recognize that we can lean into these issues and win. So, Simon, you and I have long, known each other a long time. In fact, as I was just thinking about this, our friendship would probably is just gets in under the wires being Gen Z. You know, we, we've known each other for better part of three decades. And you've known me to be kind of a policy wonk. And I'm really interested also in the policy implications here. And it, it, it relates to, you know, an underplayed part of this thing. 
the Biden administration has taken endless crap, both from the center left and from the Republicans for the policies that they've embraced. You know, they did too much for people. They focused too much on, you know, unemployment last year. They were investing too much in infrastructure. Why were they doing this thing for student loans and helping kids with student loans? Why were they, you know, why were they doing all these programs? And and you look back on this, and among the other people who got this right were the Biden administration and Joe Biden, who put forth policies. And among the, the surprises yesterday was a lot of people who said the economy mattered to them voted for Democrats because they thought that the Democrat approach was the right approach. And, you know, also as a policy wonk, I'm delighted that we are spared the spectacle. Certain Democratic economists had the results been real bad yesterday, going, see what I told you about inflation? You know, instead of celebrating the Biden administration for saying, no, no, we have to take care of people having jobs, children being in poverty, people being unable to pay for their health care. And it suggests to me that underlying all of this is a is a sea change, a step away from neoliberal economics, a step towards something considerably more compassionate and oriented towards opportunity and equity. What do you think? Yeah, look, I think Joe Biden's been a really good president. And I think it's one of the reasons we did so well in the election. <laughs> Frankly, we had a lot to run on. And we had a lot of ways to describe them as being unfit and extreme and and uh, and dangerous. And so that that was the backdrop of the election, right? We had to make it clear that we had done a good job and made things better and 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 that they were unfit. And I think that a lot of our candidates were able to do that because Joe Biden has been a good president because they actually passed things that are going to be that are not only important for today, but that are going to be important for a generation to come. And I think Democrats, you know, I said on another podcast that Democrats have to get their grumpies off, is that how we got so down on ourselves, on Joe Biden, on the country over the last year is something we have to have a big conversation about as a family. He's been a really good president. David, you and I have been, this is our third Democratic administration. And, you know, Biden can hold his own here compared to Obama and Clinton, certainly. And, and I think that you know, we have to figure out how to get into a glass half full way of understanding our politics again as Democrats. It became all glass half empty in the last few months, which ended up contributing to this kind of negative sentiment that the media was pushing, right? When if you were a journalist and you wanted to crap all over Democrats in your piece, you had plenty of Democrats who were helping you do that, both on the record and off the record, which I think contributed to a lot of this kind of cascading, never ending negative sentiment in the media, right, is that we helped contribute to that. So I agree with you. And you know I agree with you. We've talked this, about this a lot, right? The country is far better off today than when Joe Biden came into office. And we need to be far louder and prouder about that in the coming months and take back this ridiculous idea that Republicans are better on the economy, they're more capable of leading the country, right? We've got to be far more frontally engaged in winning these big arguments with the Republicans and not just being scared of this kind of direct engagement on the things that really matter. Doesn't it also mean, you know, one of the things I take away from Gen Z doing a, playing a really critical role here and independence breaking a little bit more for the Democratic Party than they typically do in a midterm election, 
is that the Democratic Party is best, Tara, when it recognizes that it's both progressives and centrists and not either progressive or centrist. And it tries to reconcile that. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I I agree with that. And I think the labels are the thing that's unhelpful um, because it immediately puts people in different camps. Like in my own head, I was just thinking, wait, where do I stand on that, actually? And I think it comes down to popular positions and popular initiatives. And I think, you know, if Democrats are smart for 2024, which, you know, effectively starts this week or next week, let's be honest. I think that they would run entirely on codifying abortion rights in this country for all Americans, legalizing marijuana, and uh, paying for big spending programs by taxing the wealthiest Americans. These are incredibly popular positions across the board. They cross far left to center left to center right in some ways. And I think that it would, if if that were the uh, platform of the Democratic Party, it would drive more enthusiasm and mobilization and energy and votes and wins than, um, than we've even seen to date. And so it's just a matter of can they uh, not step on their own toes on some of this stuff and lean into the lessons from this midterm election. I totally agree. You know, there's a whole bunch of issues that I call the 70% issues. There are a bunch of issues that 70% of Americans agree on. Fairer taxes, better health care, education reform, sensible gun controls, fighting climate change, the things that you mentioned. These are not progressive issues. or sen- These are 70% issues. These are issues that the vast majority of Americans support. That's the agenda. That's right. But the stakes are higher right now, right? What the the attacks on our our bodily rights and freedoms from the extreme right are very real. They're very visceral. And I think that also has has a real effect on the electorate. Um, And that's what we're seeing again among women and young people. Absolutely. Tom, when you look at the results, I hate to do this, and it was inevitable that it was going to come. And I waited 33 minutes to get to this. What do you think the implications are for 2024? You know, my head started to hurt when Tara said uh, then the week or two we're in the presidential cycle, but it's it's true. Take a nap, um, Tom. <laughs> yeah, it's I, I can't. <laughs> we'll get through Georgia in a month and then we'll focus on that. But yeah, no, look, I, I think the implications are many. Like I said, I think one, the fact that choice is still going to be an issue and I think we'll be a little bit smarter about it. I agree with everything Tara said just in terms of the opportunity here to be able to run on a lot of popular issues and it's on us to put them in the forefront. I think obviously they're all the sort of tactical issues of, um, you know, what's happening on the other side. And I don't think we need to get into that, even though that Republican primary has started already, but you know, that is going to have implications in 2024. Even when we look at look, the map is not great for Democrats in the Senate. It's one thing we're well aware of. It's why it makes these races, the last three that we're looking at, the Georgia runoff, where, you know, one where we get a chance to to organize and vote again, so important. Because as a reminder, the 2024 election is the echo of the 2018 election where we won in uh, a handful of red states. I think that'll be more challenging in this environment. You know, whether or not being on a presidential year helps us or hurts us, uh, you could fall on either side of that equation. But I think that's something that's important to keep in mind uh, here as well. 
I agree with everything that Tara and Tom have said today. I just want to say that this has been a really great discussion, and I learned so much from both of you whenever I'm with you, and always with you, David. Look, I I think I think the big question now, the short term question, is what happens with Trump, and can he survive this perception that he's lead he led the party astray this election that he helped dampen the opportunity that they had. There's going to be enormous resentment towards him among the Republicans in Congress, particularly if Democrats keep the Senate. The Senate Republicans are going to be universally, almost universally condemning him privately, not publicly necessarily. But it means that DeSantis's hand has been significantly strengthened. And it means that there's the likelihood of a really titanic clash between the two of them is rising, which I actually think will be very bad for the Republican Party if they end up really going at it with one another, because it's going to be the ugly. It is not going to that is not a good look for them in any way. I mean, DeSantis is, to me, a low rent version of Trump. I think he's far too arrogant. I don't think he's really ready for prime time. I'm not at all scared of him. His performance as governor has been very erratic politically, as we've seen, you know, again and again. So I think that the Republicans now have a really serious leadership problem and that MAGA is really a, a cancer and a poison in their party. So I think they got real problems heading into 2024. And obviously, Joe Biden has been a great president. He's got to make a decision if he's going to run again. I'll back him immediately if he does. But the other thing, David, I think should hearten your list, you know, your listeners is that we are going through now the beginning of a generational turn in the Democratic Party. I mean, Nancy Pelosi and and Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden won't be leading this party in four or six years. There's going to be a new a new group that are going to come in. And I can tell you from having worked in this business a long time, I think the people that are coming, they're going to take the baton from the current set of leaders are even better than the leaders we've had over the last 10 to 15 20 years. They're the they are we've got a great team coming and I'm I feel really really good about the Democratic Party as an entity as a pro, as a project, you know, over the next 10 to 20 years. And so I'm really I'm very optimistic frankly um as I often am that's my job I guess now about where all this is going, but I'm optimistic because like the data that we followed I know what's happening, right? I see it all. I know the leaders. I, Gavin Newsom and I had a significant exchange last night. He's a very dear friend. I feel really good about our party. But the one thing that I wanted to say to close with is what Tara talks about in all of our discussions is the big thing we got to get right. We have to get louder. We have to understand that we're in a completely different media fight than we've been in a different information war. We are underperforming in the information war and overperforming in governing. And we can overperform in both. And this is, I think, in the short term, tactically, you know, one of the biggest problems we have. And it's one of the reasons I'm so glad Tara has been part of this team, because almost nobody has thought about this more than she has. And she's doing a phenomenal job in helping us lead this wonderful and occasionally tired thing called the Democratic Party forward. If you like Deep State Radio, you'll want to check out World Review with Evo Dalder from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Each week, our friend Evo, former U.S. ambassador to NATO, 
talks with some of the world's leading reporters and commentators from the Financial Times, Washington Post, New York Times, Politico, and Axios, to name just a few. Evo and a rotating panel of journalists offer in-depth analyses and diverse perspectives on the week's most important emerging global news stories and why they matter. If you are hungry for more context on world events making headlines, and you're here listening to Deep State Radio, so we think you probably are, you might want to subscribe to World Review with Evo Dalder wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch a live recording of World Review every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Central at globalaffairs.org. First of all, I always accuse you of being optimistic because you've been optimistic, but the real thing <laughs> that you deserve credit for is that you refuse to get caught up in whatever the prevailing narrative has been. And you've looked at the data and you've looked at what the situation is and you've done your research and the legwork that's necessary to understand these things. And that's led you to the right conclusions. And I think you deserve an awesome amount of credit for that. David, can I, say, can I say one thing? Should we rename this podcast, I've Done My Research? Do you think? Is that what we should I, Well, that's a good one. <laughs> I, mean, it's, you know, I, I, I got to tell you, facts still matter, at least in the Democratic Party. Um, I, I, would, I, I also agree that uh, there is a great set of leaders there. And when I looked at last night, you saw Gavin Newsom, you mentioned, but uh, Josh Shapiro, Gretchen Whitmer, some of these other governors that are out there. Westmore. Uh, Westmore. They these are um really inspiringly good future leaders of America. And and that's a big plus. And and in the middle of the night, our friend uh Nira Tandon in the White House tweeted out is it just was two words, Colin, candidate quality. And that obviously mattered a lot in the election. Having said that, you're absolutely right about the work that Tara is doing, and I just wanted to know, Tara, if you want to amplify on on that and what we can do differently on the on the information front. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. I appreciate the shout out, Simon, as always to it. I I do think about our challenges in the information and the media ecosystem quite a bit. I think it's part of the reason that we have had all of these conversations and have connected with each other about how the media got this wrong they get a lot of things wrong and they frankly don't reach an increasing majority of the population, which there is some silver lining to when they get things this wrong. To be quite honest, people are getting their information elsewhere. I think one of the underreported weapons, if you will, in the information warfare that I think led to a lot of enthusiasm and mobilization on our side in the midterms is TikTok. TikTok is a controversial topic, but I've been telling people a lot lately, uh, TikTok today, the power of it, the influence of it is what Facebook was before people saw that coming before 2016. It is an incredibly powerful platform that people under 40 are spending hours and hours of their day on, engaging with people, being entertained, being informed, getting informed, and it looks and feels entirely different than any traditional formats and media. And it's something we take very seriously at Courier. All of our newsrooms are on TikTok. And the engagement is incredibly high. And it just, it's, I, I use TikTok as an example of, again, we can't miss what's already happening and where people already are. And we can't take two years or two cycles to catch up to where the population is because, because we miss it and the other side takes advantage because they tend to be faster 
at being first movers and users of really powerful communications platforms. And the media is increasingly decentralized. People are going to be moving. Just think about the owners of the major platforms and media today, Elon Musk taking over Twitter and what that's causing to the elites on Twitter, not knowing how they're all going to communicate with each other and move narrative around and things of this nature. There is going to be an incredible disruption in our information ecosystem continuously over the next few years. And we have to stay clear-eyed about that and understand where people are and how they are getting their information and how they are engaging with that information. And, and that's something that I just, I wish I were more hopeful about, but in my 10 plus years in progressive politics, it has been a steep and long education curve for folks. And so the thing I have the most hope on is these new leaders because they don't need to be educated on this. They are native. Um, on digital and on social media in ways that allow them to be more nimble and move where people move. And I think that's going to make a world of difference as well in terms of how they engage and inspire and mobilize uh, voters. No, no question about it. And and uh, I know you're right about TikTok because my, my wife, who's just slightly over 40, um, the, the, well, the first thing I hear in the morning when I wake up is her checking TikTok. And, uh, you know, my, this is a... You know, it's it's a great medium that is very dynamic, and I think, from a political perspective, underutilized. And I would draw people's attention to a New Yorker article a few months ago about the Ukraine war called the TikTok War, which talked about how the government of Ukraine has used uh, TikTok as a diplomatic uh, and political tool. We've got we've got to keep adapting in that regard. Uh, we got uh, just a couple minutes left, Tom. What are, what are the conclusions you're telling clients right now? The bind, you know, the bind closed doors, things like, hey, guys, we have to do this better. I mean, this is not a moment for self-congratulations, is it? Uh, no, uh, no. I mean, I, I don't think we, we, we can, we should take a moment and celebrate our victories. And especially the people who are on the ground in these campaigns need to take that time. But no, if we step out of this election and think, look, we're doing everything right, <laughs> then we're doing it wrong. I think, to be honest, one of the things I've been telling people today is it's going to take a little bit of time to truly understand exactly what happened in this election. Right. And we need to have patience. One of the, the most corrosive things that happens in our world is you have these hot take narratives that kind of congeal it around. 9 p.m. on election night about we have to do X, Y, or Z that usually conforms to someone's priors. And it's not always backed up by the data, right? We saw that in 2020 and talking about organizing in communities of color. I think there's some things that came of that, right? Sort of recognizing, especially among Latino voters, that we're not talking about monolithic communities. There's going to be a lot of important analysis where we need to dig in, even in these districts we want, picking up, taking the seat back in the Rio Grande Valley, very important but still a lot that we need to learn from that. So I've been telling people, look, please keep your focus and your attention with this long enough so when we have all the data, when we have the vote history, when we know who voted, when we can analyze program effectiveness, that we're paying attention then and we're learning from it then because otherwise most people move on. We're into that presidential cycle and we've moved on. So I'm asking people for a little bit of patience. Really, really helpful. And I would, by the way, ask people, when you listen to people like this, smart folks with real uh, useful insights, one of the ways that we can all use technology is to share this. Take this, 
share it to your friends. That's the advantage of a podcast. That's the advantage of some of these other media. I'm going to ask Simon one last question. We have 60 seconds. Please make me feel better about the Senate. I'm very close to the folks in Nevada. They feel uh, optimistic about what's still out there. You know, we don't know. Votes have to get counted, but there's generally a sense of optimism. And I think Georgia, we just learned a minute ago, Georgia's going to a runoff. It'll be December 6th. Uh, I don't think that Walker will do well all by himself. And I think there will be many Republicans in Georgia who feel they got their governor and that's fine. And they can and they just may not be there for this guy. I think I think Walker in a one-on-one national race, his his weaknesses will become far easier to exploit than in than what has been in a very crowded environment. So I'm very optimistic there. And frankly, Warnock pulled it off last time in a runoff. He's been through it. He knows how to do it. And I still think Arizona looks good, but we got to let it happen, you know, and let's see what happens. There's still a lot of votes to be counted there. And uh, but I'm, you know, again, and we just we just learned that Wisconsin went the other way by a very narrow margin. That's a tragedy. Johnson is really, truly one of the worst senators in the Senate and just bad for the country, not just bad for Democrats, but bad for the country. And let me end by saying this, David, look, everyone should be really happy about what happened in this election. And, you know, we're in a we're in a long struggle now to preserve our democracy, to beat back authoritarian forces around the world. And we won this battle, but there's still the bigger fight is that we're going to be in this for many, many years. And we have to win. I mean, we have no choice. And I do think for my brothers and sisters in the Democratic Party, you know, the kind of darkness and self-absorption and the crapping on all one another that we heard over the last year, we don't have any time for that. I mean, this, you know, people got to buck up, you know, put their get their grumpies off and go to work to make sure that this country that we love, that we were so blessed to be part of, is here for our kids and their grandkids in the way that it was for us. And that work is still to be done. So, you know, hats off to everybody. It's been wonderful being with all of you. Tom, it's been great to partner with you in these last few weeks uh, in in riding the ship, you know, the media ship. And just thanks, everybody. Well, thank you, Simon. Thank you, Tara. Thank you, Tom. I hope we can continue this conversation for all the reasons that Simon just said. And because, as we have learned over the past couple of years, Democracy is not just something that uh, we're handed by a prior generation. We have to work for it. We have to work for it day in and day out and every election cycle. There is a lot of forces that will still be out there pushing in the opposite direction. And we'll use all the tools at our disposal to help facilitate that. And the best tool that I can think of is talking to and listening to smart people like the three of you. So thank you very much. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And we'll be back again soon to continue this conversation. Bye-bye.